Welcome back to the listener's commentary on the Gospel of Luke. In this session, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 36. It is a snapshot from Jesus' ministry where he's casting out a demon. At least that's where it begins. But the whole section at a kind of a thematic level revolves around listening to and submitting to Jesus and the kingdom of God that is coming through him and through his ministry, through his work, through his power, through his teaching. And so this whole section revolves around really submitting to, listening to, repenting when necessary to King Jesus. That's what this is all about. And it begins like this, verse 14, and he, Jesus, was casting out a mute demon, meaning a demon that made a person mute, unable to talk. So Jesus is casting out this demon. When the demon had gone out, the man who was previously unable to speak talked, and the crowds were amazed. But here's the reaction of some of the people in the crowds. We're not totally sure exactly who, verse 15, but some of them. So the crowds are amazed, but some of them, there's at least some members of the crowds, said he cast out the demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. And others said to test him, they were demanding a sign from him. And so some are saying he cast out demons by Beelzebul. Some are demanding a sign to test him. And this really seems in some regards like a smear campaign. You can't deny that a miracle happened. Here's a guy who hasn't been able to talk. Uh, Jesus cast the demon out and immediately the man begins to talk. Well, we can't deny that happened. So let's Let's spin it and run a smear campaign by saying he casts out demons by Beelzebul. And Beelzebul is a name, uh, really like a nickname for, as it says here, the ruler of demons, for Satan himself, presumably. Well, verse 17, Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. A house divided against itself falls. So he uses this imagery of, Think about it. If if you have a house, meaning a household, right, or a royal dynasty could be called a house or a kingdom, right? If you have a kingdom divided against itself, like Israel had in its past where you had the north and the south and it eventually fell or a household, right? Like if it's split and it's warring with itself, it's actually going to do itself in. So every house or every kingdom divided against itself falls. So the point, verse 18, if Satan has been, been divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you claim, I cast out demons by Beelzebul. So if you're saying I cast out demons by Beelzebul, then I'm actually, by the power of Satan, working against Satan to remove Satan's minions, demons. That means it's divided, and that means it's going to fall. Or he gives another argument against um, saying this about his uh, activity, his exercising of demons. Verse 19, he says, Yet if by Beelzebul I cast out the demons, well then by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. In um, Matthew's version of this, we learn that those who are giving him fits about this are actually Pharisees. Uh, and so 
when he says, by your sons, he's talking about the disciples of Pharisees who are going about and they're having a ministry of exorcism and they're casting out demons and they're saying, so if you're saying I necessarily cast them out by demons, do your disciples cast them out by demons as well? Jesus' whole point seems to be that you guys are making an accusation and you haven't even thought about it clearly and logically. And so in verse 20, he says, think about this. If I actually do cast out demons by the power of God, then what does that mean? I think you guys need to think about that. This is the way he says it in verse 20. He says, but if I cast out the demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If I'm doing this by the finger of God, the finger of God seems to be a way to speak to God's activity and God's authority. This phrase is used a couple times in the Torah in the Old Testament, Exodus 8.19, Deuteronomy 9.10. The Exodus account is interesting. Exodus 8.19, it's in the account of the ten plagues that that come upon uh, Pharaoh and Egypt through Moses leading up to the Exodus. And there in Exodus 8.19, the magicians in Pharaoh's household are not able to imitate Moses's power, Moses's authority. And so they said, this is the finger of God. We can't do it. But the text says, Pharaoh hardened his heart and he wouldn't listen. Uh, Now, I don't know whether Jesus had all that in mind. I don't know for sure if uh, his audience would have totally picked all that up. But it is interesting to me that that phrase, finger of God, is not used a whole lot in Scripture. And one of the places it's used is there in Exodus, where, again, you have uh, really a display of miraculous power happening and Pharaoh hardening his heart and not listening. And so there seems perhaps to be at least an undercurrent of um, an implicit undercurrent against uh, those who are accusing Jesus of casting out demons by Beelzebub to say, look, if this is actually the finger of God and you're not paying attention to me and you're not listening to me, you're kind of like Pharaoh, kind of like Pharaoh in in the book of Exodus. Uh, So it seems that that might be implied in what Jesus is saying here, although it's not 100% clear. He says, if I cast out the demons by the finger of God, then, and the point Jesus makes is, the kingdom of God has come upon you, the reign and the rule, the very kingdom of God that you say you're longing for, that you say you're praying for, that you say you want to see happen. Well, guess what? I am the one bringing that in. And if it's the finger of God that's doing it, then it's God's authority, God's kingship that's making that happen. Then Jesus gives another illustration to kind of picture what's going on. Verse 21, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are secure. So you've got someone guarding his house. He's armed. He protects his house from invasion, right? His possessions are secure. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, that man takes away his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. And so the illustration seems to be saying, in context, that Jesus is actually stronger than Beelzebul, than Satan himself. That's why he is disarming him by, you know, taking possessions from him and distributing his plunder. In other words, what Jesus is doing in casting out demons is he is overpowering Uh, the kingdom of Satan, by the power of God's kingdom, and he is 
winning the day and distributing his plunder. And so Jesus makes the point in verse 23, the one who's not with me is against me, and the one who doesn't gather with me scatters. And so if you're going to be against me, and you're going to be against my work, then guess what? If you're going to make these kind of accusations, then then you're, you're scattering God's people rather than bringing them together, right? You're not coming to me, and if I'm bringing in the very kingdom of God, where does that put you, and where does that leave you? That seems to be the force of what Jesus is saying in verse 23. Now, verse 24 and following, really tricky little section. It's not 100% clear what Jesus is getting at. So let me read it. I'll walk down through some thoughts on it. Um, just know this is a tricky section that we're about to enter into. But remember the context. Jesus seems to be talking about people who are rejecting him, rejecting the kingdom of God that comes through him, rejecting the power and authority of his ministry and attributing his power and authority to Satan himself. All right, that's the context. This then little tricky section flows out of that. So here's what Jesus says in uh, verses 24 through 26. When an unclean spirit comes out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And not finding any, it then says, I'll return to the house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds that house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings along seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they come in and live there, and the last condition of that person actually becomes worse than the first. Now, that's a weird little text, right? And it is, what, what is Jesus getting at here? What is it even doing? What's the point? In Matthew's version of this, which shows up in Matthew chapter 12, this little section that we just read is a lesson explicitly stated for this generation. In other words, it's stated for the people of Jesus' day. Now, that's not quite as clear here in Luke, although it flows out of those who are rejecting Jesus, right? Those who are not with me are against me. Those who don't gather to me, they scatter, right? Um, so it flows out of that. And then immediately in verse 29, again, we get a mention of this wicked generation. And so while it's not quite as clear in Luke's version that it's a lesson for this generation, it seems to be connected to that same theme here as it is in Matthew. And so it seems like, I'm trying to be very honest that this is an unclear section, so it seems to be a story illustrating the danger that the generation of Jews of Jesus's day are facing. That's what it seems like. It seems to be an illustration, not like some weird, you know, um, all of a sudden we slipped into some metaphysics of the spiritual realm and how the demonic realm works. That doesn't seem what this is. This actually seems like Jesus is telling an illustrative story um, about the danger the generation of Jews of Jesus' day are facing. Here's how it seems to be working. He's the Messiah. He's confronting evil in every form and proclaiming the kingdom of God. He's pushing back the darkness and expelling the evil among them, but they're refusing to welcome him in. In fact, they're attributing his work to Satan himself, and so they're against him, and they're against the kingdom of God that's coming through him. And so it's most likely not a lesson on demonology, but on Jesus cleansing evil among them. And if they don't welcome him in, then greater evil than before will overtake them. That seems to be what this is an illustration of. 
Let me say that again. This seems to be an illustration of Jesus cleansing evil among them. And if they don't welcome him in, then they're in danger of having greater evil overtake them. Now, all of that is somewhat tentative. I hope you heard a lot of seams in there. Um, that's somewhat tentative. That's a hard little section. But that understanding of it seems to fit with what follows as well, because what follows this little illustration is all about responding to Jesus, listening to his word, listening to the wisdom and the light that he brings. And so it seems to fit the context of what's going on here. All right. So that's the way I'm understanding verses 24 through 26 as an illustration of the danger that the Jews of Jesus' day are facing by rejecting Jesus the Messiah and not welcoming to themselves, even though Jesus is pushing back the evil. Now, while Jesus was saying these things, Luke goes on, verse 27, um, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said, Blessed is the womb that carried you and the breast at which you nursed. But Jesus said, On the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and follow it. That phrase in Jesus' response, on the contrary, has more the force or more the feel of yes, but. And so he's not denying that his mother is blessed for being his mother. He's saying, yes, but there's something greater than just having been my mother, right? That's what this woman is saying. Blessed is your mom, right? And Jesus is saying, yes, but um, there's something greater than that. And the greater thing is to hear the word of God that he's teaching and that he's proclaiming, that he's embodying, and to follow it. And so Jesus is the one who proclaims and embodies God's word, and the greatest blessing is on hearing and following that word. Luke goes on and continues kind of a follow-up then to that story and says, Now, as the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is a wicked generation. It demands a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. And Jonah was a sign to the people of Nineveh, and they repented. Jesus says he will be assigned to this generation, this wicked generation in which he's living, this time period, this people that he's directly speaking to. They're demanding a sign. He's doing miracles. They're attributing the, those miracles to the work of Satan rather than to the kingdom of God. They're rejecting his work. And so he says, just as Jonah was assigned to the people of Nineveh, I will be assigned to this generation. Now, again, in Matthew's version, Matthew chapter 12, Jesus connects the sign of Jonah with his resurrection. In Matthew's version, it's as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days, so Jesus will be in the tomb for three days, and then he'll rise again. So it seems that what Jesus means by the sign of Jonah is this. Jesus is preaching and warning them of judgment, the judgment that will come for their Jewish nationalism for rejecting the way of God, for ultimately rejecting Jesus' Messiah. So he's preaching and warning them judgment, but this generation of his day is rejecting him, and they're rejecting his teachings, they're rejecting his warnings. That rejection ultimately will culminate in their crucifying him, and yet he will be resurrected and thus vindicated by God, and all of that will be a sign that God's judgment on them is just and right. That's the point of the sign of Jonah. That in their rejecting of Jesus and not repenting at the teaching of Jesus, um, then 
that just is a sign that God's judgment on them that is going to come is just and right and fair. So Jesus goes on then to emphasize the justness of their condemnation, even at the final judgment. In the temporal judgment that's going to come in AD 70, when the Romans destroy the temple and wipe out Jerusalem, that judgment will be just. And ultimately, in the final judgment, it's even going to be more just, right? Still just. So verse 31, here's how Jesus emphasizes the justness of the condemnation that they will experience. He says, the queen of the south will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to listen to the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something or someone greater than Solomon is here. Uh, Jesus recalls a story from 1 Kings chapter 10 in the Old Testament where the queen of the south hears about the wisdom and the greatness of Solomon. She wants to come and hear him and listen to him. And so she comes, she listens to him. Someone greater than Solomon is here. Someone with more wisdom than Solomon here. A, a king greater than Solomon is here, meaning himself, which think of the, the import of that statement. But Jesus is claiming to be greater than one of the heroes of Old Testament Israel. And he's saying someone greater than and wiser than Solomon is here. And you guys won't even listen. And so the queen of the south, She'll actually rise up at the judgment and condemn the men of this generation because of your unrepentance and your faithlessness and your unwilling to listen. Jesus goes on and gives another illustration of the justice of this. Nineveh, because of the whole Jonah thing, right? So verse 32, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it. So the, the men of Nineveh from Jonah's day, guess what? They're going to actually be able to say, yeah, you guys are getting what you deserve at the judgment. Why? Well, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater or someone greater than Jonah is here. And so we see that Jesus is holding his generation accountable for rejecting his teaching and preaching. He's in their midst. He's teaching and preaching. He's performing miracles. He's casting out demons. He's doing powerful works by the finger of God. And they're just unwilling to listen to him. They're even going to attribute his miraculous power to Satan himself. And so he's, he's holding them accountable for rejecting him and his teaching and his preaching. The queen of the south, she came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. The Ninevites, they listened to the preaching of Jonah. But this generation of Jesus' day, they're rejecting the word of God in and through Jesus. And so this leads Jesus then to issue a warning about receiving the light of his teaching. And that's how the next little bit fits in with this section. Verse 33, no one lights a lamp, puts it away in a cellar, or puts it under a basket, but they put it on a lampstand. So in Jesus' day, you have a little clay lamp that you would put a little a bit of olive oil in, one in the base of it, and then you'd put a wick in it, and you'd light it. So you get this little tiny lamp, and you don't put that under a basket. You don't hide that away in the storage closet or the cellar. Where do you put that? Well, every little Jewish home would have um, little shelves on the walls where you would put a lamp, a lampstand, so that it could be high enough and it could add light to the whole house, right? No one puts a lamp, you know, in, in hiding. That's not the point of it, right? And so you put it on the lamp so that those who may enter, those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of the body, right? Like close your eyes, no light. Open your eyes, you have light. Your eye lets light into your body so that you can see the light. When your eye is clear, 
literally whole or single, your whole body is full of light. So when your eye is actually clear and you're seeing straight and you're seeing clearly, your whole body is full of light. But when it's bad, your whole body is full of darkness. And so if your eye is bad, if your eye is unhealthy, if your eye doesn't work, well, then your whole body is full of darkness. Now, Jesus uses the same analogy in other contexts, such as in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a totally different context than here. In connection with the point Jesus has been making here about responding to his teaching, the way the analogy seems to work in this context is this. A lamp only does any good if it's put on a stand and if a person's eyes are good. Like, no matter if the lamp is shining light, it's not going to help if it's hidden or covered up, or if someone can't see. So spiritually speaking, are your eyes good? Spiritually speaking, are you full of light? Are your eyes working so you actually can see the truth, that you can actually see the light? That's the way the analogy seems to work here in this context. So Jesus drives this point home in verses 35 and 36 by saying, so watch out that the light that is in you is not darkness. In other words, watch out that the so-called light, the so-called knowledge and spiritual insights you have actually isn't darkness. Like those who are accusing him of casting out demons by the power of Satan himself, like they claim maybe to have light, but they're actually full of darkness. They're not seeing clearly. Their eyes aren't working well. That's why they can't see, you know, what, what is so obvious to everyone else all around them. Make sure that the light that is in you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light without any dark part, it will be wholly illuminated as when the lamp illuminates you with its light. And so to be full of light means to be full of truth and goodness. You, you can see, for example, 1 John chapter 1, where it says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And then Light and darkness in the context are associated with truth and lies and with righteousness and sin. And so light is truth and righteousness. Darkness is lies and sin. And so to be full of light means to be true, full of truth and righteousness, truth and goodness. And so the warning and the appeal of the imagery is to be a light person. That is a person who is full of truth and righteousness. And this brings us really full circle from where this section began. It began with people running a smear campaign against Jesus and saying he's in league with the devil. There was no openness to the truth about Jesus. There was no openness to the possibility that indeed Jesus might be uh, doing his work by the finger of God, the kingdom of God. There was just outright rejection of Jesus, so much so they're going to run a smear campaign against him. No willingness to even look at the facts. No willingness to see what is obviously going on. And so verse 23 offers this, the, really the general principle of this section. Are you with Jesus? Or are you against him? Are you gathering people to him? Or are you scat scattering people away from him? Um, are you going to listen to his word? Are you going to submit to his authority? Are you going to repent when necessary? Are you going to repent where he calls you to repent? Or are you full of darkness? Hey, it's John, and I just want to say thank you to those of you who make the Listener's Commentary possible. As most of you probably know, the Listener's Commentary is free because donors give to it, and 
make it possible for me to create this resource. And because of their generosity, people all around the world are studying the Bible and are learning and growing in their faith. Pastors in parts of the world that don't have access to Bible college or Bible commentaries are using this to help prepare their sermons. And so it's a massive blessing to so many people, and it's made possible by those of you who donate to this ministry. So thank you so much for your generosity. If you've been blessed by this in some way and you have the financial means to do so, would you consider donating to the listener's commentary? You can check out the link down in the notes below. Go to the listenerscommentary.com slash give. You can set up a one-time or a recurring donation. Currently, the listener's commentary is a little bit uh, over 50% funded. And so We really do need more people to join the team and donate so that this ministry can continue to grow and expand and reach more people. So thanks to those of you who already donate, and thanks in advance to those of you who will join the team and donate down the road.